Hi, welcome to the PhD Addicted to Research podcast. This podcast is put together by PhD students funded by the Society for the Study of Addiction. Today's podcast is going to cover what um, could I be doing alongside my PhD and we'll be talking about different activities you can be getting involved in and also importantly how to decide on which ones that you take on and which ones that you perhaps should turn down. My name's Joanne Puddyfat and I'm a third year PhD student at the University of Liverpool and my research focuses on how alcohol and mental health uh, problems co-occur together and the different sort of social groups that might be at risk of having these co-occurring problems. And today I'm going to be joined by Marva and Carolan. Yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Carol and I'm a PhD student at the National Addiction Centre at King's College London. So I've just submitted my thesis, final year. Um, so just waiting for my fiver. Uh, so my research was looking at um, contingency management. So how we can deliver these behavioural interventions remotely using mobile telephones to promote uh, treatment adherence in people with um, opioid dependence primarily. That sounds so interesting and oh. congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, well done. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, my name is Marva and I'm based at the University of Exeter. So my research is on uh, rumination in alcohol use disorders. So I, I am not, I have not submitted my PhD. I'm not there but I'm in my, fi- I'm starting my final year now, so that's where I am. <laughs> oh, well, thanks for joining me today. Um, so when I started my PhD a couple of years ago, um, initially I thought that you just do the PhD and, you know, you just kind of crack on with that. But then I started hearing a few things of um, getting opportunities to do things such as um, helping out with teaching, helping with reviewing papers or getting involved in different aspects of projects that weren't related to my PhD but people would always tell me that it would look good on your CV. I wondered uh, Carol Ann now that you're at the end of of the PhD what was your sort of experience of doing anything extra? Did you have to or was there anything in particular you were interested in doing? Yeah I so I I think this is a tricky one because phd as we've called it in a previous <laughs> podcast, which I like that term, I think we should use that. Um, phd in, in itself is definitely enough, and I think people should realise that there's not pressure, you know, we don't need to put pressure on ourselves to do 101 other things, um, and it's about prioritising what's important to us and what we think would be beneficial alongside um, our PhD project, and then kind of rolling with that. So I, for me, there was a couple of things I thought were really important, and I've kind of prioritised teaching and trying to secure additional funding, so different pots of money. So firstly with the teaching, I, f- I found it really beneficial to to work as a GTA, so a graduate teaching assistant. So at King's, I, I'm a GTA for the undergrad psychology course uh, there, and I started that uh, second term of my first year, which I was probably quite early on now that I think about it, because I think a first year you're still trying to find your feet but I I did it in the second term and I've continued to do it right through my PhD so that's just leading seminars and taking practicals and and, uh, workshops with um, first and second year psychology students and it's also really beneficial because what you can do so of course I mean you get paid for doing these types of jobs which is obviously (laughs) really helpful as a PhD student because let's be honest we're not 
we're not rolling in it, are we? Um, so <laughs> it's really helpful. <laughs> yeah. Mm, so it's it's actually really helpful to get yeah a couple of extra pounds a week. But bear in mind, your university may restrict the amount of like teaching and extra kind of work that you can do. So at King's, I think essentially it's one day. Um, so one day a week, you're allowed to uh, be involved in non-PhD other work-related things. Um, so I think it is worth bearing in mind just to like suss out or speak to your supervisor and find out. But another thing, if you do teach, you can um, all that experience you can apply for the Higher Education Academy accreditation. So the HEA, and you can apply at um, associate fellow level. So and I don't think it's. I mean, the application is quite. Is quite long and it's quite difficult to fill out but you're teaching anyway so you may as well get accreditation for it that's um, true yeah i haven't i haven't done that so i was just gonna ask you because i heard a lot of people i hear of some people doing it and i just wonder like is it something worth putting my time into if i'm already doing teaching like do you think it's worth because you're now like in the stage where you're applying for your next step do you think it might be helpful having that extra accreditation because that's something I've considered, but I haven't quite made up my mind. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And I think probably about a year ago, I was I was thinking seriously about it. And uh, with with the um, with the EM off, keeping my options open, I guess if if yeah. I do want to go into teaching after PhD. Um, and I was told that um, because it's becoming more popular, that universities, whenever they're recruit or recruiting um, teaching fellows, they may start to ask for HEA. Um, so the accreditation, okay. the teaching, yeah. Um, but at the minute, at the minute, um, it's desirable, but it's not essential. So I was told that if if you're up against somebody and on paper you have the exact same experience and education and you're ticking all the boxes if one person has a HEA they're gonna get picked over you so if you think you might want a career in teaching and your priority you're prioritizing getting that teaching experience you kind of may as well go for it the reason why I didn't was because I was in my writing up stage and I looked at the application and it's quite long so that kind of put me off um but I guess I can still do it at a different stage. Yeah, I feel like perhaps it's one of those things that is better to do earlier on because you just have a bit more time. And I kind of regret not thinking about it in my first year. Um, mm. I only just heard about the HEA application very recently. Someone um, in our research group mentioned it because I'd done a little bit of teaching, but um, I had no idea that you could apply for you know this qualification. Um, and what about you, Marbra? Is there anything in particular that you found that you te- that you've been asked to do during the PhD that's not necessarily part of your PhD as such? Um, as as Carol has said, I have also been involved with teaching, which I think a lot of PhD students do, and I think it is a really good experience. Especially, I found in my first year that when you're sort of like doubting yourself a little bit, teaching can be really reassuring because 
it kind of reminds you that you do know things and you can communicate to undergraduate students. So I think that's a really nice thing to do when you start off, maybe like starting off with a topic that you feel most comfortable in, like within your research area. Mm. So I think that's a really nice um, thing to do. Um, apart from teaching, um, one of the other things, which is kind of close to teaching, I guess, that I've been involved a little bit is I can say like broadly science communication. I think this is something that I'm interested in. So, you know, trying to communicate science to different audiences than just the academic audiences. And I guess my involvement with this has been in form of um, doing these sessions for widening participation to university. So this was for people from disadvantaged backgrounds who are less likely to attend university and the uni would organise um, some sessions for them to see what it's like to study at uni and like what it's like to do psychology, for example. Um, so I've done some seminars, I suppose, on my research area, on addiction generally or on psychology. So I found that quite rewarding because I felt that I was kind of helping um, other people as well. Um, and yeah, it's a fun way of doing it because you don't have to be so academic about how you present the research on the topic and you can have a bit of fun with it yeah Um, so that was like an interesting thing to do that sounds really interesting and I think um when I've looked at jobs in the past or um applying for funding for things something I always see is being able to demonstrate that you can communicate like a wider audience And I wonder, like, how do you even, where do you even begin with trying to get involved in either, you know, teaching or um, in, you know, in sort of scientific engagement activities? Where do you you find these opportunities? There is a department in our uni who... um... I think it's under access access or widening parts it might be called widening participation but their role is to just you know increase recruitment to university and sort of they had this presentation during our um introduction week mm. so I got in touch with people through that and then when I got to know one person who was working for the I think college of life and environmental sciences and then they kind of put me through with other colleagues so maybe looking out to see if there's a similar um, department at your uni and if they haven't gotten in touch with you maybe just asking like and looking for widening participation activities that Mm. your uni does and trying to get in touch with someone through that could be helpful yeah also because I'm at the institute of psychology psychiatry and neuroscience we have and every department's going to be the same but most of them should have like a circular like an email circular that goes around so that's how I found out about the GTA work because I just got an email that came through looking for GTAs for the psychology course that's where that kind of popped up so it's always worth making sure that you're subscribed to them and that you do you know you do have a little browse through them whenever they do come through but can I also say in the teaching because I know that some people get a little bit put off by face-to-face teaching and it doesn't always have to be in that capacity Um, so Mm. I know people who are GTAs but they just mark assignments they don't do face-to-face teaching and we can also supervise um, students so master students doing projects we can co-supervise them as well which is always really good teaching experience but not necessarily that standing in front of a group of students and delivering um, some material Mm. so it's just thinking of the different ways that we can do that and prioritizing of course again what's important to us. Yeah that's really interesting yeah especially with 
Though I suppose I think I'd find it quite nerve-wracking supervising um, or helping supervise students. Um, a bit of the imposter syndrome in me would probably come out. Um, <laughs> and then I guess as well, like um, something that I've been asked to do a few times now um, is, especially once I've submitted papers, is actually reviewing papers. I don't know if either of you have had been asked or had any experience of of that but I know first time around I've I spent a lot of time just reviewing this one paper because I was really nervous about saying the wrong thing or being a bad reviewer well I I'm just gonna hand this straight over to Marva because because <laughs> <laughs> whatever you say about imposter syndrome Joanne I have been asked to review a paper before actually on two occasions after submitting to a journal as well and I declined because I thought I'm, I don't think I can do this. And this was during my first year. So I was just like, nope, sorry, I'm busy. Um, but Marva, you have recently had experience with this, haven't you? Yeah, so actually this is very recent for me. Um, and when I found out, I asked a couple of you guys because this was the first time for me as well. So what happened was that I was discussing it with my supervisor and she said that she would pass on a relevant paper if she gets asked to review one. Uh, and she did. And I was really excited but equally scared I think in the same way as Joanne described mm. in terms of feeling that imposter syndrome like am I capable of, capable of doing this <laughs> am I qualified enough to do this um so I had that moment of panic and I just messaged the group like um has anyone done this before like what do I say should I take it on um and then I ended up taking it on um, because I do think it's a really good experience. Um, it did make me think that it would it would really help me, I guess, improve my own papers, but also get a bit of experience and uh, reviewing other people's papers. So, um, yeah, I'm just starting to do it, really. I just had a read of the paper yesterday and I was like, OK, like, I do feel a bit better about it now. Um, but I think what might help me is um, I had a chat with my supervisor about it and she offered that maybe we could have a look at it together. I think, you know, this is something that you would have to declare to the journal, mm-hmm. but I think it's seems to be quite normal when you're doing it for the first time and it can help with that feeling of the um, imposter syndrome if your supervisor is also looking through it and so what I'm going to do is I'll do a first review and then send it to my supervisor and then they can just kind of see if they agree so that gives me a bit of confidence and uh, comfort um, that I'm not like completely messing it up basically. Yeah that's that's a a really good um, idea being able to do that I think when I first reviewed a paper um, I I reached out to my supervisor and just asked for some help uh, just for some advice and she was able to send me some like example of some examples of responses and stuff because by that point I'd only ever submitted a paper I'd never received reviewer comments so I didn't know what format they come in but also just trying to find time to fit reviewing the papers in because um, especially if it's not something that I'm really like a method that I'm not really familiar with um, is when I t- tend to decide whether or not I'll take it on. And I wonder whether it, are there any other like things that, that we could that as a PhD student you could think about doing during your PhD aside from you know lecturing or um, doing widening participation well 
one of the things, um, and I know I said this before about prioritizing what's important to me, but I think that we should do that. Um, otherwise, there's just copious amounts of opportunities and we'd never find the time to actually do our PhD work. So one of the other things I tried to prioritize and make sure that I was um, being proactive to achieve was just securing little pots of money. And I, I touched on that briefly before, but mm. so say for instance, um, a conference has come up and even thinking about conferences, that's another thing that we should probably all be doing alongside our PhD is attending conferences, yeah. but not feeling, not feeling um, overwhelmed by by doing that um, on too many occasions I would I would recommend one or two a year definitely in the first year not trying to attend too many of them because they are really overwhelming but yeah listen to our podcast episode about the conferences as well (laughs) good point good plug in Marva but whenever things like that come up about attending conferences and doing lab visits and those types of things often no money comes with them and you need to pay to attend them and they are quite expensive um so trying to secure little pots of money to to actually attend conferences and to do little things or to run a workshop at a conference or a symposium um all in little things take funds and it's really good experience to secure them because yeah it looks great on your cv and it's really beneficial within um, academia and research mm. to be able to pull in money because that's how we that's how the research world goes round and that's how we fund our work so that's very uh, true definitely yeah so for me that's that's something I've prioritized yeah and I suppose as well like post PhD being able to already be familiar with what the process involves in terms of getting those little pot even if they're only little pots of money but getting a general sense of what goes into that process um, so Marva, can you think of like any other sort of things that you know you've done so far or that you might want to do before you finish your PhD? Um, I was just thinking that something that Carol said reminded me about this, about supervising students. I think this is a another really good experience and you know, if you wanna go in, if you are gonna be going into academia, it's something that we're gonna have to do going forward um so I found it really helpful last year um my supervisor asked me to help out with supervising a group of undergraduate students so she was still there to support me and like you know she was still very involved from the beginning but we sort of had topics closer to my area of research and topics closer to her uh, general expertise and then we kind of took leads on those different groups even though she fed into both of them Um, And I found it a really sort of useful experience and again, like gave me the confidence that, okay, I can do this. Um, I don't know if any of you had any experience of doing that. I think, Carol, you mentioned you were involved with the master's projects as well. So I haven't had... I haven't had any direct experience with supervising master's students, but me and my supervisor have just submitted a a research proposal for master's students for the, uh, the cohort um, the next cohort for the masters at the yeah kings so hopefully i'll be able to add that string to my bow because i think it is good experience i think it's um it's just about giving something back isn't it um, mm-hmm. so my experience has just been limited to to teaching but not actually supervising students so 
I think that's quite an exciting opportunity. And I think in a way, it also allowed me to see things a bit more clearly from the perspective of the supervisor. You know, we're often on the other side of that relationship. So I think it kind of helps maybe, okay, so what are the things that might um, might frustrate my supervisor that I do? So when you're in that position, you can kind of see the other way around of the relationship, which I think is really useful. Um, yeah. Definitely. I've... <laughs> Yeah, I've not, like, I wouldn't say I've not helped supervise a student before, but I've been involved on projects with, um, say, a master's student or an undergraduate student where they've done, it's really for their project, and I've tried to help assist them with, um, like, a systematic review, for instance. And it was interesting coming at it from, you know, my supervisor's point, of, even though I wasn't their supervisor, but coming at it where I'm not the one doing the bulk of the work but I'm giving feedback to them and um, I actually found it super helpful for my own career progress I don't know what the right term is for that just because I was able to kind of get a better understanding of how to sort of manage or help someone uh, without being too hands-on or being too hands-off and trying to find that balance Um, and it's all as well you know good for the CV, um, that good old quote that we like to use. But um, <laughs> it was all, it was just interesting to see it from a different perspective where I'm not the one that's learning, I'm the one that's helping teach them. Uh, yeah. Exactly. I think we yeah. forgot one of the most important things to do in onside your PhD. What is what? it? Do a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, just do a podcast. <laughs> but in all seriousness, um, yeah, this is good fun. Of course, doing a podcast. But I was thinking about something that's maybe because we've talked a lot about like securing funding and teaching, and that might not be within the reach of some of some PhD students. So something that's a little bit easier to do is just trying to put yourself out there and network. Um, now I'm not yeah. big into Twitter. Actually, I only set up Twitter like last year whenever I was at a conference because I went to this talk that was really good, and I was like, I want to tweet about it, and I was so nervous, <laughs> like sending the first tweet. But it, it's it's a bit nerve wracking. But it's so amazing how you develop connections through Twitter. Mm. Like I tweeted something recently and there was people liking it or whatever you do. I don't know if you call it liking <laughs> it on Twitter. I don't know. I think it is like. <laughs> yeah, but people like, I didn't even know, like did that. And then I was able to click in through their profile and then you get to learn about what other people are up to and other people within the fields and what their research involves. And it's a good way of collaborating and making connections and and it's also really good so that people know you know there might be somebody who's really interested in your area of research and it's really nice that people can contact you and find out what it is that you're up to and it's a good place to share like publications and stuff like that so if you've published a paper put it on twitter and you're you're increasing the profile of it aren't you it's just Definitely. getting your name out there i suppose yeah so network and i think we can all i think we can all do that and i should probably do it a little bit better than I do but hey I'm making an effort <laughs> that's such a good point I mean I think as I would the same as you with Twitter I got it purely once um I've started going down the academic route and I'm still terrified to this day of making a grammatical mistake on a tweet <laughs> um because I, I don't <laughs> but it is it's it has been a really good way for me to kind of get my research out there and to also see what other names are in my sort of field as well and being able to engage with people. I put a tweet up the other day which had quite a few likes and there were people from like 
researchers from like Canada and Boston that had liked it and wow, you know so cool. it, yeah it was really cool being able to reach out in that way and I suppose as well with networking that kind of goes in hand with some of the widening participation as well because it's not just Twitter but you know networking with non-academic uh, audiences as well might be helpful for you know applying for extra funding or for a new research project even I guess yeah and I think I do hear that like nowadays more and more with grants they kind of want you to say how you're going to involve the public with your research so if you can already demonstrate that you can communicate to your your research to different populations I think that is a strength and I think like you said especially right now online communities like twitter are so important for networking when we can't actually go out to um, conferences and be there physically yeah yeah definitely we've talked a little bit about you know uh different ways in which we can cut different things that we can do during the PhD but it's really easy to kind of get I think from my own experience to get kind of wound up into saying yes to absolutely everything and wanting to please people um and only on I would say very rare occasions have I said no when I've just absolutely don't have the time to do it how do do you both go about handling you know deciding on which things you take on and which ones you don't I think learning how to say no is equally as important as learning how to say yes to good opportunities because I have, um, so it's quite often I, so somebody asked me to do something for them or get involved in something, sometimes I feel obliged to help out and to do it even though if that's yeah. sacrificing my own time or adding extra pressure and stress to me. So I think it's really good to, if it's not going to benefit your PhD or your career, then you should probably think about saying no and not just stretching yourself too thin. And Because whatever we say about learn how to say no, I think sometimes, I, I don't know if other people do this, but I definitely do. And I think it's to do with the imposter syndrome. And I said about saying no to reviewing a paper, but I was also asked to talk at um, not a huge conference, but it was one in London um, and everybody who was presenting at it were all doctors and professors within the field and here's tiny old me little PhD student and my supervisor um, asked me to present at it and I was like oh I'm not sure and she kind of looked at me and I was like if you want me to do this just tell me I'm doing it don't ask me will I do it and she was like okay you're presenting and she got up and walked away <laughs> and and that was it and honestly it was one of the best experiences that I have had not that I enjoyed it massively but I can look back now and I'm glad that I did it um, so sometimes I think saying no is equally as important as putting yourself out there. But as I said before, just prioritizing as well. Yeah. And I think I just want to say like, also, it's good that you've challenged yourself in that instance and you've gone outside of your comfort zone. But I think if something makes you feel really anxious and uncomfortable, like, you don't have to do it as well, just to note that. I think that's so true. And I think it just boils down to just figuring out what is important to you and your PhD and your career. And if it's not something that you're going to stick onto your CV and be proud of, then I would be inclined to say, don't do it. Yeah, that, especially whenever time is precious. And doing a PhD in itself, PhD is difficult enough. <laughs> I love that word, PhD. Yeah, I think we should say that. That is another thing, because you equally, we, we equally don't need to do anything else on top of the PhD either. It can always, it can just sometimes be seen as something that you do, uh, something that I've experienced is that it's just something that you can do to bolster the CV before 
you go out, we go out and you know, start applying for re for yeah <laughs> we go out to the big wide world of uh, being an academic or being a researcher um and you know I certainly there's people that I've come across who you know maybe perhaps don't engage in in as many things but equally um something that I find hard at times is comparing myself to what other people are doing outside of the PhD and maybe feeling a bit more obliged to get involved in things that I haven't done as frequently. So with, um, I made like quite a, I was quite proactive at the beginning of the PhD to start writing blogs, like blog posts, because I was absolutely terrified of writing a blog post and putting it out there. So I tried to like force myself into doing that and reaching out to um, like my supervisor and some other people to, uh, you know, help write the blog posts as well and putting it out there to non less academic um routes I don't know whether or less academic publications I guess so that was one thing that I was quite quite keen on 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 uh getting involved in that wasn't necessarily that's massive PhD, but yeah. um that's yeah so I cool. definitely agree with yeah. you Carol that's a good point I think that's really cool yeah yeah and I think if if this is Isla highlighted anything, you know, the three of us, we've been doing so many, like we've been doing different things. Like, you know, Joanne, you've been doing more of reviewing and writing blogs and Carol and I have done teaching. Carol has done more of funding. I've maybe done a bit more of like, I don't know, widening participation, whatever. Like we've just done very different aspects of it. It's just to show that you choose what you're interested in and you don't have to do all of it yeah. just because other people are doing different things definitely yeah. and I think yeah, a lot, during a PhD you can you can sometimes compare yourself to where, what everyone's doing and where everyone's at in terms of the progress of the PhD but also that goes beyond that and what people are getting involved in So today we're joined by a special guest, Dr. Rachel Orrit from Cancer Research UK. Um, and Rachel previously uh, was uh, did a PhD at the University of Lincoln. And since then, you've gone on to uh, carve a career in health communication. So thank you very much for joining our podcast today. No worries, um, I'm pleased to be here. <laughs> so it, in today's podcast, we've been talking kind of all things about... Um, you know, activities that you can do while uh, during a PhD to help with career development and things like that. Um, and I guess to get started with then, I was interested in learning more about your role at Cancer Research UK and how you got into that realm. Sure. So at the moment, I'm a health information manager. Um, and what that means is I evaluate and communicate all of the evidence around cancer risk and also early diagnosis and screening. Um, and that can be anything from, um, you know, writing reports, managing web content, doing press. Um, for me personally, I have quite a special interest in smoking cessation and some of the wider determinants of health that drive inequalities. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's my, my job in a nutshell, but work in a, a broader team and um, have a, yeah, lots of lots of colleagues to work with me on that. That's cool. So how did you end up getting into um into this sort of career well, I'd, I'd really love to say it was all you know meticulously planned throughout my PhD um, <laughs> it certainly wasn't so I uh, I got lucky really I was looking around at other job options after having a couple of um failures of grant applications for postdocs 
and mm. um, really just looking at how broadly I could cast my net and 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 things that I might not have considered before because you know at, at that sort of stage I think I was in quite a pressured situation of needing to to get a job essentially um, mm. and I saw an opportunity at CIUK um, for a health information officer and it hadn't really been something that I'd considered because health information was quite a world away from my PhD in sort of animal behaviour and psychology. Um, the, the main link really between the two was about risk perception um, and, you know, about how you communicate risk. So mm-hmm. I was able to draw on that and, um, and find, find a career that I really loved, yeah. Well, that sounds really interesting. And um, we were, Martha, Carol and I were talking about... Um, today we're talking a little bit about different opportunities that you can get as a PhD student so um, I'm in my final year now and certainly since starting my PhD sometimes I find um, I get asked to do or invited to do different activities such as uh, lecturing or reviewing papers or getting involved in like a side project and it's I do sometimes find it difficult to know which activities to prioritise and I wondered what sort of activities if any did you do alongside your PhD and how did you go about choosing them? Yeah it's a really good question and I think it, it's different for every different person and that's mm. where I'd really suggest as I know it's hard but as much as possible try not to compare yourself to the PhD students sitting next to you because everyone has their own different thing that they're interested in and, and path they want to follow. Um, Mm. I think for me I tried to do the things I enjoyed and have a little bit of faith that you know those enjoyable things would end up being transferable skills that I could use in the rest of my career Um, and that's a that's a good rule of thumb Um, Mm. the other sort of rule of thumb that that I I suggest and I don't know how uh, proper it is of me to suggest this but (laughs) is to try a little bit of everything because you, you don't really know what you're going to need in a in a future career you know opportunity um and if you have a little bit of everything to draw on and you can at least say oh I spent a couple of months doing this and and you have an experience to provide in that situation um then I think that's almost a safer option particularly for people who don't have a clear direction forward and are considering lots of different um potential career paths no that's really interesting was there anything in particular that you definitely didn't uh, want to try out while doing your PhD at all? To be honest I I wasn't very good at protecting my time Um, and that is something that I think is so important particularly now Um, Mm -hmm. you know protecting the time that you need for yourself for your own mental health and prioritising what you're going to do to you know make sure you've got the best chance for your career but also you've got to look after present day you as well. Um, I did a, I did some lecturing I really uh, was quite um, quite passionate about teaching other people so uh, I did some lecturing and that really helped me to develop science communication skills because you have to explain things in a in a way that you wouldn't necessarily talk about them with other researchers. Um, mm. So I did some of that. I uh, I also tried to think about ways that I could be a bit more creative and, and stand out from the crowd a little bit. Um, so rather than kind of hopping on the opportunities that were in front of me, because there are lots, you know, throughout your PhD, um, and you can't say yes to everything. I tried mm. to think about what, what I really liked doing, and, and that was really presenting. So um, 
I did a, a bit of a seminar tour towards the end of my PhD, you know, it allowed me to kind of meet all of these um, different researchers, you know, um, build those bridges for future if I ever needed them, and also work on all of my presentation skills. Oh, that's so interesting. And where did, how did you come about finding sort of those opportunities, you know, for teaching or, you know, for trying to like broaden out um, and making yourself stand out from the crowd, I guess? Yeah. Um, Yeah, asking the question, it's an obvious thing to say, but, um, you know, you don't know (laughs) unless you don't ask. Um, You've you've really got to be brave enough to kind of put yourself out there and and ask people um, what's going on. And, and just let people know really what, what it is that you're interested in and you'll get suggestions back. No, that's really, yeah, that's really helpful because I know um, from, my own, from my own experience it can be a bit daunting to put yourself out there with people sometimes. And I guess from an employer's perspective, what would you say you would look for in someone who might be joining your team or someone they might be working with? What would you look for in someone who's just completed their PhD? Yeah, good question. I think you're always going to be a little bit of a wild card um, if you're going on to a career outside of academia. So I'll speak to that because that's my experience. People don't necessarily know what a PhD is. You know, they know it's one step after a master's, but they don't necessarily know what that involves. So it's your job to explain that in your CV and in the interview process. it's also your job to find out what what would be the skills that they would be looking for. And the way to do this is before you're looking for work, look at the job, um, the job descriptions and the kind of advertisements around the areas that you think you might like to work in and see what they're asking for now so that you can mm. start to build that experience so you're ready um, when that comes along. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to have a, you know, a definite direction. But just knowing the sorts of things that are being asked for um, can really help you plan how to build that experience so you're a really attractive candidate when the time comes. That is a really useful tip. I didn't, I've never really thought about that um, until now. Normally, if, you're, if I've ever applied for jobs like before my PhD, um, I just look at the job description and it's purely reactive rather than proactive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a really good uh, tip for anyone. Um, have you ever said said no to an opportunity during your PhD? And if so, how have you gone about turning that down? The way I would pick the things to turn down is if I already thought I had that experience covered with another area. Um, yeah. And I think you can be honest with people. You know, people appreciate that uh, PhD students are incredibly busy, have a lot on their plate. Um, and yeah, just to say to someone, you know, um, it sounds like a really interesting opportunity and I'm sure that someone would be interested to to help you out. But um, for me at the moment, this isn't the sort of experience that I'm trying to build into into my, you know, um, range of things that I can do. So um, I, I would also say that if at that point, you know, the 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 connection between you and who's, whoever's offering that opportunity is open to say what you are interested in say you know I am actually at the moment looking for more you know presentation experience or or whatever um mm. and you know it might it might turn into something that you really are interested in rather than something you're just trying to you know firefight and and block <laughs> no that's really helpful like one of the things I think um 
both myself and other listeners can relate to is is knowing and learning how to say no in a right way without completely shutting off that door as well um (laughs) yeah and I think it's so easy to be I, I have a it's a pet theory that you know um PhDs attract people pleasers and um and it's so it is so hard especially when you know that someone's trying to be helpful in you know providing you with something um but yeah definitely having the confidence to say no and explain why and and keep that bridge open is is key Mm. oh no that's really helpful and I guess like a final thing then is what would you say what are your top tips for choosing opportunities that might help secure a job post PhD either in academia or outside of academia um people talk about networking and I, I hate the term um, because I've never followed up on anyone who's given me a business card and I've, I don't think I've ever had anyone follow up on me giving out <laughs> business cards um, but building a group of people um, that just sounds like networking doesn't it but <laughs> I, I, I guess I guess I would try and treat networking more as making friends um, and it doesn't matter if that is friends with your peers or friends you know at other universities who are also PhD candidates like they can be just as useful as um as friends who are you know in in higher positions and and might be able to um well might be your employer at the end of the day Mm -hmm. um so yeah focusing on that and building that network is a is a really important thing and um you know if if you think about yourself and you heard about an opportunity that wasn't right for you but you thought it might be right for someone else you wouldn't go to a business card you got from a conference two years ago that's like getting dusty behind your computer you would mm-hmm. you know you'd message your friend wouldn't you and say oh I saw this and um, and then yeah it's it can be tricky um I, I think be as inventive as you can um yeah you know if, if the opportunity doesn't exist there will be one way to create it and if it's a valuable enough skill or experience for you and and where you imagine your career going then then invest that time that's great well thank you very much for um all of your advice and i'm sure all of our listeners are going to like really appreciate it um and yeah so thanks for chatting with us no worries it's been great so i wonder Marva, do you have any sort of top tips for people if deciding on if they've been asked to do something what would be your top tip for doing anything else outside of your PhD? Well I think my general tips about doing things outside of your PhD um, is perhaps to think about what you're interested what you're passionate about and go through that route and also being proactive is important I think if you're seeing other people do stuff that you want to do just ask them how did you get involved with this like what do I do to do what you're doing um it is really important to be proactive I think and I think one more thing about I guess like general tip about this we talked about how to say no but I think it's also important how to say yes in your own terms Mm. um and this is something that I'm kind of learning through experience um and I told you guys a little bit about this in terms of accepting the review um I should have asked for an extension really but I didn't and I think that was a mistake um so I've kind of pushed myself a little bit I've sort of spread myself a little too thinly to do this and I should have just said I can do this but I need a bit more time so I think that would be 
my other tip about this generally I don't know what you think Carol yeah no I totally agree I think it's just about figuring out what's important to you what's going to look good in your CV if it's not going to be valuable then especially if you're struggling to to work out if you have time to do something if you're trying to weigh it up yeah I think you just need to sometimes you just gotta be ruthless but I also think that whenever you're doing a PhD there's so many opportunities that are out there and I think you should try and make the most of your time as a PhD student and get involved in as many things as you can because a couple of times I have been involved in different activities and and different things and they have opened up doors to other opportunities as well because once you get involved in one um, particular event or activity whatever it might be that that can that information can be passed on or somebody can uh, flag up your name to somebody else if they're looking for something to be done or they're interested in um, getting you involved in something so I think it's it definitely opens up more doors and that's always a good thing that's a really important point I think being open to those opportunities but I suppose just knowing your limits at the same time definitely okay yeah great well thank you for chatting with me I've definitely learned a lot and I'm gonna have a look at that HEA application as well (laughs) (laughs) yeah I might do that as well I mean I don't think I should do it in the next couple of weeks I've got too much on (laughs) later on (laughs) and I think I think I'll promise to review the next paper that gets sent to me. <laughs> I've just made that promise, so there we go. Just always read the abstract first, that's what I've learned. Always read the abstract before you accept. <laughs> good point. Read yeah, very good point. Cool, well, thank you very much for joining us. And thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks, Joanne. Thanks, Martha. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. So that's it from us today. We hope that you enjoyed listening to this episode. Um, and thanks to Carolina Marva for joining on, us on this um, interesting discussion. Um, so we'll see you for the next episode, which will be aired in two weeks. And subscribe to the podcast and make sure you don't miss the episode. <laughs>